There are many verses in Scripture that exalt the name of our great and glorious God. We go to Genesis, we learn he's the creator of the heaven and the earth, uh, and all that is beyond in the universe. The psalmist tells us, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Isaiah gives us the words of the Lord where he says, I am the Lord, there is none else, there is none beside me. When we get to the book of Revelations, we find he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the Bible is full of texts that remind us how great God is. This morning I want us to think of something else that is great about God that is a complete contrast to those verses and the thoughts I've just mentioned. And that is that our great and glorious God, that he should humble himself and that he should do so for sinners like you and me. And so we're looking this morning at the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is known as Palm Sunday. I don't know whether it's celebrated in many places today or not. We don't have to keep the day. We don't have to be slavish to these things. But I think quite often it is useful to remind ourselves as these seasons go by, uh, lest we miss them altogether. And so today we remember the passage that I've read from Matthew chapter 21, um, Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And it would seem to me that much of what we see on this day and the days leading up to Calvary teach us a lot about the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a humility that is there on purpose. And it's a humility that he bore for you and me. And I suppose before we go any further, it's good to be reminded that learning about what God has revealed, particularly about himself in Scripture, um, it is what we're meant to do. That's what we're meant to know. That's why it's revealed in Scripture. Uh, and we need to remember that everything that is revealed in Scripture there is for not just our learning, but it is for our understanding that he did these things for us. So, for example, when we think of his humility, he became poor, the Scripture says, that we might become rich. There's a reason for all of these things. And as we learn whatever aspect it is about God, it's something that should affect our thinking Uh, And our thinking affects the way in which we live. So it's something that ought to touch our our souls, our hearts this morning. So then a few headings. Let's start off. I want us to think first that Christ's humility was real. It wasn't something mocked. It wasn't uh, some kind of fake news. What do I mean by the fact that it was real? What I mean is the particular experiences of Christ were not some out-of-body experience. It wasn't the fact that, well, here is God in the flesh and uh, the things that he uh, is humiliated in, the pain he bears and the things he goes through are kind of sidelined, that they're there, but he doesn't really know them in, in their fullness because he's God. That's not the case. All the experiences that Christ uh, underwent were real. So, for example, when Christ was born in Bethlehem, it would seem to me, and here's one of the mysteries, and you might want to think about this, when he was born as a babe, does that, did that babe in Bethlehem understand that he, in fact, was God in the flesh? We don't have any revelation of that. All the experiences that babies went through, Christ went through, and that's very humiliating. 
As he grew up, we read in scripture, and we've got a great gap, haven't we, between uh, the birth in Bethlehem and the time that we see him in the temple, age 12. And by the time he gets to age 12 in the temple, he has an understanding of who he is and what he is about. And it's, you know, some of these things are good to ponder, but, but not to ponder too much strength, because if it's not revealed, then we have to leave it. But at what point did Christ actually become aware of who he was? It's one of those mysteries, I think. But by the time he got to the age of 12, we see him in the temple with these learned men. It says he was both hearing them and asking questions. It says they were amazed that his understanding and his answers. So by the age of 12, yes, he knew who he was, and here is God in the flesh, and he's undergoing all the experiences and feelings of a 12-year-old. That was real. He said, wished ye not that I must be about my father's business. He was well aware at that age of, of what he was there for. And it says his parents understood not the saying which he spake unto them. Again, it's one of those mysterious things. Mary and Joseph had angelic visits. They were told who Christ was going to be, this babe. It was the Messiah. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew some of the things that, that, that this baby was going to do. And when he begins to do it, they don't understand. That's, that's quite a puzzle. So again, for us perhaps to think about. But the puzzlement that Jesus saw in his parents was all part of that humility. It was real. It, it, was, it was nothing that was sidelined. When he rode through Jerusalem in the passage that we read on an ass, he knew what was going to happen in a few days' time. He, he knew what was waiting for him there. He knew that suffering was so close. When he went into the Garden of Gethsemane and he was in such anguish that he sweat drops of blood, that was real. When people spat at the Saviour in such indignity, when they forced a crown of thorns on his head, he felt the pain as you and I would feel it. He felt the nails being hammered into his hands and his feet. When on the cross he said he's thirsty, he was really thirsty. All of this was a, a voluntary humility that he might do the will of the Father and that you and I might be redeemed. And that's a sobering thought, isn't it? The nails went through his hands and he felt it so that you could get into heaven. He became capable of suffering. He didn't have to do that in that sense, but he became capable of suffering. He became a man in order that he would suffer. It was real. He became capable of tears, that he might cry. He became capable of death. The eternal Son of God became uh, in that position that he would lay down his life and die, that we might know eternal life. He became sin. He literally became sin. It was laid upon him in order that we might be relieved of that sin, that we might be forgiven. And perhaps worst of all, he bore the Father's wrath in a way that we can't understand, and a way that we couldn't bear that. And he did that in order that we might not. He knew every painful step of humiliation, and it was real. Secondly, Christ's humiliation was foretold. We're quite familiar with some of the passages of the Old Testament. 
Um, let me remind you of Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, He is despised and rejected of men. It's an interesting passage, isn't it? Isaiah 53. If you follow any of the, the Jewish mission uh, magazines and literature we have, it's one of the passages that uh, Jewish evangelists will often bring out to uh, people from Israel. And uh, it's a passage that usually Jewish people are not drawn to. But when it's shown to them uh, and they read that, they perhaps often say, well, I didn't know that was there. To whom does that relate? And it's been used so many times for Jewish people to realise that it relates not only to their coming Messiah, but it relates to Jesus Christ, who was their Messiah. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Interest, it's all written in the past tense, isn't it? As if that's something that's happened. And in one sense it had, because it says he is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. But it has been said that this is something that will be very precious to the nation of Israel when they do uh, finally accept that Jesus was the Messiah. Richard was telling us um, about this recently in in a Bible study. When that time comes, this passage will be so important to them, they can read it as it is in the past tense and can say, this is our testimony, that we did this. This was his experience. He was humbled for us. And if you go back a chapter in verse 14 of chapter 52, it says, his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. That's a tremendous thing. What does it mean to, be, to have your visage, to have your look, to have your face pulled about, to have a beard pulled off your face? That was foretold. But this day, Palm Sunday, was also foretold. And we often kind of perhaps forget this, but in Zechariah uh, chapter 9 and verse 9, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation. He is lowly, riding an ass, and upon the foal of an ass. We know Christ's birth was foretold, his death was foretold, even his resurrection. It speaks of it in the Psalms, in the prophets, but we're less familiar with this particular passage. And yet, in one sense, The prophecy of Palm Sunday is the most focused and targeted prophecy that there is in the whole of Scripture. We know we've got prophecies about Jesus Christ coming again. And we've got signs and things to look for when he comes again. Sometimes we speak about that. But it says he will come at a time when you think not. Christ's birth was foretold, but we didn't know exactly when it was. But this is something that is very accurate. And it's written some 500 years or thereabouts beforehand. 
So when Christ was riding on that ass, going up to Jerusalem, or entering into Jerusalem, he knew exactly what was happening. He knew exactly what that day was. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, we read in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah. So there we've got two target times from when the commandment went to restore Jerusalem until Messiah shall come. And he tells us about the timing of that. And uh, there's there's lots more into that because it, it goes into the second coming as well. Put simply, Daniel sets out the time when Christ would be presented to the nation of Israel just as the Passover lamb was laid to one side before it's, uh, it was slain. And Daniel gives the starting point of that. He says, it's when the Persian king, Artaxerxes, gives the decree that Jerusalem is to be rebuilt. And we know when that is. And that's how accurate scripture is. The Holy Spirit got that written in the book of Nehemiah. And you say, well, why was that date there? Well, because Daniel was going to refer to it and because Christ was going to come on Palm Sunday and we're going to measure these things. They're they're signposts that give us increased authority to the word of God. And we know from Nehemiah that the decree that King Artaxes gave to uh, start the rebuilding in Jerusalem uh, was in the month Nisan in the 20th year of the king's reign. That's 445 years B.C. We know that Christ's entry into Jerusalem was on the 9th of Nisan, A.D. 30. That is exactly 483 years later. and That fits exactly uh, Daniel's calculations that it should be 483 years later. So this day is a a very special day. As far as I can see in scripture, it's probably the only day that's pinpointed so accurately. So when the Lord Jesus Christ said, as we have recorded in Luke, it says he wept over the city of Jerusalem and he said in Luke 19.42, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day. He was talking about that day. You know, sometimes we talk about the days in which we live, and that's a general thing. But sometimes it's just one day, isn't it? We have our birthday. Although one of my daughters often says she wants a birth week. Um, But that only highlights what we mean. No, it's a day. You only get one day for your birthday. And this is what the Lord was saying here. If only you had known in this your day, that that very day, the things that belong unto thy peace... But now, he says, they are hid from thine eyes. That was a day when he was being presented as the Lamb of God to the nation of Israel. And and if you like, in theory, they could have welcomed him. But they didn't. Came to his own, but his own received him not. In one sense, we can so praise God that we were brought in uh, to that glorious opportunity of, of the gospel under his decree. Let's move on. Christ's humility was progressive and was as deep as it could ever be. We think of, and we've already touched on, his incarnation, his birth, how humble that was. You know, many years ago when I was working in secular employment, in fact, when I first came up here, we, we'd opened, uh, you know, a government department had opened a government college uh, up at Riseholm. 
And uh, after a few weeks, Princess Anne was coming. And she was coming to officially open the college. And we had to think about all the things you have to do if a member of royalty comes. There are certain things you do and certain things you mustn't do. And Buckingham Palace, they send out a whole load of stuff as to what's got to be done and who can be there and who can shake a hand and who can't. You know, one thing we were not told. We were never told to find a donkey for her to ride on. You, you wouldn't, would you? It's just, you know, that's special. My friends, how would you arrange for the coming of the Son of Man, Son of God, to come to earth? I'll tell you what we wouldn't do. Well, this underlines his humility. We wouldn't find a tatty stable, would we, for him to be born in? We'd make sure that there were some things that would belong to him. We, we would make sure it wasn't a case of he owned nothing. We wouldn't let him be brought up in poverty. Would we let him mix with people that hated him? And would you let him ride into the capital on an ass? Those are things we wouldn't do. And we need to remember, don't we, this is God coming into Jerusalem. This is God presenting himself as Messiah, as the one prophesied throughout the Old Testament. Philippians 2, verse 7, says he made himself of no reputation. People want a reputation today, don't they? You see uh, government ministers, something goes a little bit wrong financially or morally, they lose their reputation. He made himself of no reputation, he deliberately, not through immorality, not through financial uh, issues, but he made himself of no reputation because he was about to take upon himself our sin. He took upon himself the form of a servant, And was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It says he became in the form of he came in the form of God, and yet he was the Son of Man. That word form there in the original means of essential nature. He never laid his divinity to one side. He was God and he was man. He never stopped being God. But he willingly let go of the glory that he had. As he grew up, he didn't demand his rights as God. He set aside his privileges and rights that he might do the will of the Father. Imagine how tempting it must be when something was not right to just put it right. When someone spoke wrong, to just deal with them. I think we were saying, well, I think we must have been talking about a certain politician that we've all become very familiar with. We said, why doesn't God just strike him down dead? Because that's our our knee-jerk reaction, isn't it? I think God can do that. Why doesn't he do that? He has his reasons not to do that. But you see, when Christ was here on earth, there was a temptation to do those sorts of things, but he didn't. He came into the world in a borrowed womb, born in a borrowed stable, lodged with friends. When taxes were due, he had no money to pay them. Sent Peter off to find a fish. He borrowed this ass. Interesting to notice, I'm not sure I really noticed that before. I was reading it again this morning. There were two animals, weren't there? There was the the ass and there was the, the colt of the ass. There were two animals there. Perhaps one wouldn't have gone without the other. But he borrowed them. He borrowed an upper room for the Last Supper. At death, he borrowed a tomb 
Well, that made sense. He only needed it for three days. And someone wrote a hymn, didn't they? But the cross he bore and the crown he wore were his own. You know, in his ministry, he takes the mockery of religious leaders. These people who who should have welcomed him, been studying the Old Testament for generation after generation, everything looked towards the Messiah, here I am, and they just mock him and even want to kill him. On Palm Sunday, they're plotting his death, but it says that Christ set his face steadfast to go to the cross. Knowing all of this was going to happen, he was going steadfast to the cross, And another passage says he went to the cross for the joy that was going to be his. And that joy was going to be having you and I in heaven. His trial was a mockery, wasn't it? And yet he was guilty. He was guilty. The scripture says that he opened not his mouth. And that's why he didn't open his mouth. He didn't contradict them, and the reason for that is because he was standing in your place. We couldn't contradict them. When they called him a sinner, he was a sinner, not in himself, but standing in our place, he is a sinner. The Lord God made him sin. He takes the whipping, the scourging, the beard pulling, the reviling, said in one place, and he could have called for legions of angels. That would have been dramatic, wouldn't it? That made a good film. Jesus Christ on the cross, and then all of a sudden the skies open and legions of angels coming down and Christ walking off the cross. We wouldn't be here today because there'd be no salvation. His blood had to be shed for repenting sinners. A work had to be done. Our sin had to be laid upon him in order to deal with it. As the hymn says, our sin not in part but the whole was nailed to his cross. If he'd walked off the cross, we wouldn't have been saved. We would still be hell-bound sinners. And so he stays there in all his humility, hanging up naked before the, the, everything that he created, his own creation. They look upon him. He humbled himself and become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And it's here on the cross that his humility progresses into the greatest depths that we could ever know and I guess we don't really know the depths of that humility they were depths that no one else could reach he'd come from the highest glory and now he's cursed the word of God says cursed is everyone that hangs upon a tree and that's where he was he's still as much of God as ever but he'd emptied himself of so much the line of the hymn says doesn't it Emptied himself of all but love. Of all but love. He laid aside his glory. Laid aside his riches. Laid aside his right to extract himself from that situation. One has said he was a subtraction of all his privileges. But not his nature. And his nature there was one of love. And his ultimate humiliation is to hang there and to feel his father's dejection and wrath. And he cries out, doesn't he? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's a tremendous cry because Father, Son and Holy Spirit had been in perfect harmony for all eternity. And and now 
one of the Trinity is turned away. And there is discord in the, in, in the Trinity in that sense. He is forsaken of his father. And the reason? He just had my sin laid upon him. And your sin laid upon him. And I, you know, I thought for a moment, I was musing on this this morning, Christ asked the question, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken him? And the father could have answered. And you know how he could have answered? By listing our names. Why have I forsaken you because of James Mansfield? You can put your name there. And I would suggest that that would have taken such a long time for God the Father to have read that list. Because John in Revelations, he sees the redeemed in glory. And he said it was a number that no man could count. So we see something of the depth of Christ's humiliation for us. I've got a final fourth point here. Christ was humbled that we might be exalted. You know, some time ago when speaking about the God of creation, I said that one reason God created at all was to give him, for want of a better word, a stage to display his glory. You know, it's a job for us to take this on board, but before creation there was nothing but God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and there was no one to see the glory of that and so God creates the heavens and the earth and the heavens show my glory and we see his glory particularly on the cross of Calvary we'll see more of his glory when we get to glory but part of that creation story was the necessity for redemption and for a plan of redemption. And a part of that would be the humiliation of Jesus Christ. It's a part of God's eternal plan in order to get us into glory. We, outside of Christ, are in a place of humiliation. We are dead in trespass and sin. And and God has stooped down to our level. He's come down to earth, hasn't he? To lift us up. We sing in one hymn, love lifted me. He has exalted us in himself. Because he became poor that we through his poverty might be made rich. And he identifies with us in this poverty. And he identifies with us in his exaltation. Having died for us, he rises again. And the scripture says that if we are in Christ, we arose with him. And it says we are now seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're not physically there, but spiritually God says, I count it as done. Romans 8, he says those that he called, and he goes through what we might call the gospel chain, he says we're glorified. He puts it in the past tense. We don't look glorified, we don't feel glorified, but God says I count you as glorified in heaven already. And on that resurrection day, we shall be in full possession of all that he did for us. As the hymn writer says, and I think it's in the one we're going to sing in a moment, he was humbled for a season. Only for a season. And that season is now past. He is risen. And we read that God hath highly exalted him. And every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess. And when he comes again, he will not be riding an ass. Revelations 1 verse 13 speaks about the, the, uh, 
the, the, the saviour that John saw in glory. said, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet were like under brass, they burned in the furnace. His voice was as the sound of many waters. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. You know, it's amazing that today, by speaking of Christ's humiliation, we actually exalt him. You can't do that with anyone else, only the Saviour. And in this world, people exalt themselves to get fame, don't they? Whether it's for good or for evil. But our Saviour, through his humiliating death, we read, God hath highly exalted him and given him that name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee, every knee shall bow, even Mr. Putin. So what have we looked at this morning? Christ's humility was real. He felt all those things that we read about and that we feel. It was foretold, even this very day was foretold, Palm Sunday. His humiliation was as deep as it could be, and he was humbled in order that we might be exalted. And so a little bit of application as we draw to a close. You know, we ought to have our hearts full of praise for the Lord, for his humiliation, that he would do that for me, do that for me. He needn't have created. He needn't have saved me. Oh, the love of God. Oh, the grace of God to sinners. We think of that line of a hymn and it says that these things cause our souls to soar. Last Sunday we came out of church at Newquay and uh, we'd got some lunch with us and we stopped by a I think it was St Agnes Head or somewhere. We found somewhere to stop over the cliffs and we watched the birds soaring. And this is what it means here, that hymn writer. Our soul soar, as it were. We ride on the blessing and the wonder of what Christ has done. Then also, should this not mean that we walk humbly before the Lord? We've been exalted in Christ that we might walk humbly as he did here. Like Christ, we're not to always be claiming our rights and our privileges. We've nothing to be proud of in ourselves. We're to be those of a contrite spirit, the wearers of the garments of meekness, which the Lord says is of great price. What does uh, Paul write to the church at uh, Ephesus? Walk in love as Christ also have loved us and gave himself for us as an offering and sacrifice to God. We're to walk in that sacrificial, humble way before one another and before God and before the world. Then also we, we're to look forward to seeing him in, in all his exalted glory. We couldn't do that now. We're not fit for that. We need that transformation. We need that resurrection. We need to be that, that changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that we might have the capacity to see God in all his glory. Nice to have something to look forward to, isn't it? But there's nothing greater than anticipating the time when we shall see the Saviour. When we shall see him, we will be changed. The line of the hymn says, and it face to face 
shall I behold him far above the starry sky. And then finally, that we might be ready to meet the exalted Saviour. He's made all things ready. This humiliation is a part of his work in order to, to get you into heaven. And the scripture says we're to repent of our sin and believe the gospel. And that's how we're saved. That, that's how we have entrance into heaven. That's how our sin is dealt with. And he's done all the work. Done all the work. And really to refuse the gospel is folly, isn't it? And it's, it's much more than that. Well, we'll leave it there for this morning. But as we ponder this day, Palm Sunday, uh, and no doubt Ian will give us more uh, for, for our souls tonight, may the Lord bless us that we might uh, walk humbly before him for his name's sake. Amen.